Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's my privilege today to say the Bible reading for today. Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Please pull out your Bibles or your phones. We'll be starting from verse 25. Luke chapter 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he had enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, and is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. So a big warm welcome to those who are here with us for the first time. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors of the church, uh, along with Ben Hove, uh, who is our senior pastor. Uh, it's my joy and privilege to preach from God's word to us today. Uh, and if you were following along in the reading, uh, please keep your Bibles open in front of you. We'll be dipping into it again. And you may have noticed as we read, it's pretty full on. It's a very weighty, weighty passage. And the weightiness of this passage will be met in some ways with uh, just as equal or if not greater joy in our passage next week as we look at Luke 4, 15. For now, though, we have a weighty task in front of us, so let me pray and ask God to bless us as we read from this word. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you now to receive this bread of life, your word. Help us receive this today, perhaps a bitter word, but necessary for our health and life and obedience before you. We ask for your Spirit's gracious work to be done now. Take this word preached. Make it, may it be clear. And may we respond. Grant this, dear Father, for your Son's sake. Amen. During the week, I came across an article in the independent news website titled, The 13 Biggest Mistakes in History. Now, some of the mistakes are quite slap your head, uh, kind of slap your head unbelievable like how 12 publishing houses rejected the first manuscript of Harry Potter, right? the book which by J.K. Rowling, which would go on to be translated in, into over 60 different languages, and the series itself would earn J.K. Rowling over $1 billion. All that time, James Howell purchased 7,500 Bitcoin in 2009, when their value was basically zero, their value today, 7,500 Bitcoin, is worth $3.5 billion. However, he threw away the hard drive containing those Bitcoin in 2013. Those are some pretty terrible mistakes. But on that list of mistakes are some actually very serious mistakes. Like the, 
like this one from 1922, when American chemist Thomas Midgley discovered that the compound tetraethyl lead could help petrol burn more slowly and more efficiently in car engines. The additive was then added to petrol across the world, even though the effects of lead poisoning were well known for the last thousands of years. Several workers adding the metal to gasoline in US factories during the 1920s died. Scientists also later realized that leaded petrol could be directly linked to brain damage among inner city children. So the fuel additive was now, is now banned around the world. That's a serious error. But on that list, I noticed one of the biggest mistakes in history was missing. A deadly serious mistake which has been made by millions of people over the centuries. That's the mistake of people believing that they were followers of Christ when they were not. The mistake that many have made thinking that they were disciples of Jesus when their priorities and their lives showed otherwise. This mistake is much more serious than a publisher passing over Harry Potter, more serious than losing 7,500 Bitcoin, and dare I say more deadly than adding lead to fuel. So I want to ask each of us today, and listening at home, have you made this mistake? Are you in danger of assuming that you're a follower of Christ when actually you're not? That's a really serious question. And so, so serious that we really need to pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying in our passage today. Because today's passage is really clear and it's got a very simple message to understand. Jesus says one main thing. You cannot be Jesus' disciple if he is not your first priority. You cannot be Jesus' disciple if he isn't your first priority. But the simplicity of today's message is going to be one of the hardest as well for our hearts to hear. Because we are going to be asking ourselves constantly, is Jesus really first in my life? Because if he's not, then you cannot be his disciple. We begin in verse 25. <clears throat> now over the past few weeks, the interactions uh, in the Gospel of Luke have generally been between Jesus and the Pharisees. Here though, the attention turns back to a crowd, a rather large crowd that has begun to follow Jesus. Now, in the Christian world, there is often a big mistake made by pastors and churches. And the, the mistake is assuming that a large crowd coming to your event or your church is necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Well, a large crowd here is following Jesus. But instead of giving them an opportunity, uh, telling them you know, an encouraging, feel-good message, what he says next seems designed to cull their numbers. Now, why would he do that? Why, when he's got so many people evidently clearly interested in listening to Jesus, would he turn to them and try to thin out the crowd? Because he wants commitment, not just numbers. So hear what Jesus says to them. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to verse 26 again and let's read. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, 
First things first, Jesus says he comes first, even before family. Now let's be honest, that statement from Jesus is incredibly demanding. SLE Church here is a place filled with people mostly from an Asian background. Now in most Asian cultures, there is a strong emphasis on filial piety, right? respect and honor for your parents and ancestors. So there is an emphasis on being good to your parents and grandparents, and you are to bring a good name to your parents and your ancestors. Now at best, filial piety echoes the Bible's call to honor and obey our parents. That's a good thing. But in a sin-stained world, sin transforms and impacts culture. And so a good thing, like filial piety, gets twisted and corrupted. Parents and family become the greatest priority. And every action and motivation is done to honor parents first. To that, Jesus says no. And you notice how in these verses he also uses the word hate, which is a super strong word. Is he saying that we should abandon our families when we become disciples? Well, the call to hate our families cannot be literal. Let me say that again. It's not literal. Because if you read it literally, if you read it flatly, you'll quickly run into heaps of trouble. It would contradict God's commandment to honor father and mother. It would contradict Jesus' own command to love others as he loved us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love our enemies. So what is Jesus saying? When the Bible uses absolute language in this way, it's usually to draw a comparison. Hatred is sometimes used in the Bible to actually describe the comparative degree of affection. So as an example, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 30, we read of the story of Jacob with his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And there in that story, we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. That's what you read in verse 30. And then in verse 31, we read that Leah was hated. Now, that's not to say that Leah was neglected and utterly destitute, but it's to say that in comparison to how much Jacob loved Rachel, He had very little affection for Leah. Hate is not the opposite of love, but in in the way it's being used here, but one is so loved that it's like the other is hated. At the end of verse 26, Jesus says that we are even to hate our own lives. Uh, What does Jesus mean by that as well? See, here in these verses, Jesus is using what we we call hyperbole, over-the-top language in order to teach what it means to follow him. He says these stark things so that we get the message crystal clear. Jesus is to mean more to us than anything in this world, more than our families, and even more than ourselves. Our supreme affection is for Jesus. So what he wants And how we respond to that and how we live to that will be governed by his supreme directives. This is what it means to be his disciple. Discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. And that's hard, especially when it comes to putting Jesus above our families. Now, Christians in every generation have struggled with this, particularly Christians from Muslim and Hindu backgrounds. 
for many believers in those parts of the world to say yes to Jesus is a potential death sentence. And if it doesn't go that far, then it's certainly an oppressive scrutiny and persecution of family. I know there are some here, and I know there are some watching online, who have experienced this firsthand. Right? The guilt-inducing disapproval. The, the anxiety-provoking questioning. The yelling. The shaming. And all because you want to follow Jesus first. In the face of those trials, Jesus says, bluntly, I come first. If you love your families more than me, if, if their opinions and voices matter more to you than mine, you cannot be my disciple. And in verse 27, Jesus repeats a phrase he used all the way back in chapter 9. Have a look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To carry your own cross is more than just to put up with a hard and difficult situation. Right? The people that Jesus was speaking to would have immediately pictured what he meant. Right? To see a man carrying his cross was to see a man going to die in the worst of all possible deaths. To be asked to carry your cross was to be asked to be willing to hate your own life, even to be crucified by the Romans for the sake of being faithful to Jesus. Jesus is asking us to do what he himself would do. He would suffer and be rejected on the cross, and his death would not be glorious, but it would be utterly humiliating and shameful. From birth to death, Jesus' life is bookended by humiliation. Born in a stable, not in a royal king's palace as he deserves, a gross and dirty and smelly feeding trough, animal feeding trough for a bed. And at the end of his life, hanging on the cross, his death was naked, shameful, painful, filled with rejection and contempt. And so it is, it is right over the centuries and the millennia that the church has understood this call to carry your cross as a call to follow in the painful footsteps of our Saviour. They rejected our Lord and killed him. And if we follow Jesus, we should expect nothing less. Now these words of Jesus here smack so hard against the prosperity gospel. Against the gospel that preaches that life is all about fullness, about abundance, about wealth, about success, about finding your potential and your destiny. A message which offers your best life now. It's a message that offers you a crown, but bypasses the cross. However, true disciples are ready to share the fate of Jesus as he was rejected by the world. Following Jesus is going to be hard as we follow in his footsteps. And when things get hard, those who desire a simple and easy road will end up turning away. In these opening verses, Jesus has a big crowd following him. But he does not want spectators. Jesus wants 
and is calling for recruits. And he knew, he knew that the only disciples who would go the distance were the ones who were ready to sacrifice everything for him. You cannot be Jesus' disciple if he is not your first priority. So how can you tell if Jesus really is your number one priority in life? Well, answer this for yourself. Are you willing to give up everything for him? Now, how many of us hesitated at that question? How many of us tentatively said, yes? How many of us said yes with a little asterisk on top, trying to find a footnote or a caveat, an escape clause that will say, uh, yes, I, I will follow Jesus, kind of hoping it won't be that hard, but, or yes, I will follow Jesus, and uh, if I can keep holding on to this one last thing as well, can I do that? Well, Jesus answers the hesitant follower in the next two illustrations in our passage on what it means to follow him. The first illustration comes from construction. Jesus tells his listeners, sit down and work out the cost of following him. Hear what Jesus says in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all, not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, the illustration here, I think, is pretty simple. A wise person works out their expenses before they start a building project, lest they start, lay the foundation, and then just don't have enough money to finish the rest of the project. The unfinished building will then sit there as a monument and an embarrassment and shame to their foolishness. In 1987, construction began on the Ryugyong Hotel in Pyongyang, North Korea. Uh, the North Korean government wanted this, uh, this hotel to be the tallest hotel in the world. 105 floors it could have been. They wanted it to be the pride of their nation as a kind of way to stick it to the rest of the world. However, the North Korean government was not wise, and soon enough the money dried up. In 1992, construction was halted. The building stood topped out, but without windows or interior fittings. Finally, the exterior was finished in 2011, which looks nice on the outside, but internally it remains unfitted. It currently holds the Guinness World Record for being the tallest unoccupied building in the world. It is a monument to the failure of the North Korean leadership. Only a fool starts what they cannot finish. So Jesus is saying the same thing about discipleship. You need to calculate whether you are ready to take on the big personal commitment and sacrifice required to follow Jesus. Now the second illustration I think is in some ways more important. Sometimes we maybe we gloss over it really quickly. But I think it's more important because it's an illustration that forces us to make a decision about Jesus. Hear what Jesus says, verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Note that there are two kings in this parable. One king has a force of 20,000 soldiers marching through the land. It's an unstoppable army. The other king has a big army as well, but it's only half the size. So a choice is put before this second king. Does he run out into battle? Well, he knows that would be foolish. It would be certain defeat. Outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. If he makes an all-out stand, then he is sure to lose. See, if this king is competent, then he will do what is the obvious thing before him. Negotiate for peace. Here is a warning to the crowd that was listening to Jesus here. There is a king coming, a king that you cannot defeat. And that king is Jesus. He has, always be, he has been speaking constantly about his coming kingdom. And if you're not a part of his kingdom, if you haven't joined his side, then you are going to be on the losing side of history. So be prepared to make peace with Jesus before it's too late. Maybe that's you at home. Maybe that's even you here. You've realized that maybe, just maybe, you haven't been following Jesus properly. Jesus is giving us a chance here and he's giving us a warning. Make peace with him sooner rather than later doesn't matter what background you've come from. Maybe even you've come from a church background where you've been burned in the past and you're not sure about this whole Christian faith. Jesus is looking at you again and saying, make a decision about me. Whatever your experience, come back to me in the scriptures here and engage with me and do business with me. Negotiate peace with me because he offers it to you. Following Jesus requires you to count the cost. We all need to ask ourselves how much it will cost us. How prepared are we to deal with King Jesus? And as you're working through those questions, I think the most important one rises to the top as we're sitting down and working this all out. The most important question that rises to the top is, is Jesus worth the cost? Now, to cap off these hard hard words, Jesus concludes in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. After telling us to count the cost, Jesus reminds us of the cost itself. You have to be ready to renounce everything to follow him. Notice that little word all there in verse 33. That is not a technical word, and it means exactly what you think it means. Everything. Everything? Everything. Now, how do you feel about that? How, what goes, what's going through your mind as you hear Jesus lay out that challenge? In my heart, I, I'm kind of jumping up and down with all sorts of questions. What about this? What about that? What about my responsibilities here? What about this? What about that? But the answer keeps coming back. Cost you everything. Which sounds like an awful lot. You could take that in some really weird ways too. But again, in context, all of all that Jesus has said so far in the Gospel of Luke, 
We can work out what he means by this exactly. We can also work it out in the negative. We can work out what he's not saying. In everything that has been said so far in the Gospel of Luke, we can work out that Jesus is not saying, sell everything and be, you own and become a hermit or a homeless person. He's not saying we need to reject and disown our parents or neglect them. He's not saying we should divorce our spouses or neglect our children. He's not saying we should, everyone should quit their jobs and end up becoming missionaries. But here is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying absolutely nothing should take priority over him in our lives. Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to commitment to him. It's not about how little you can give or the low bar that you need to jump over. And as long as you just jump over it, you're fine. Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to commitment. It's about how much he deserves. How can you tell if Jesus is really your number one priority in life? Again, some questions to follow on from that. Are there any relationships, desires, or other things in your life which take priority over following Jesus? Or crowd out your priority to follow Jesus? Has it cost you something to follow Jesus? Does it continue to cost you something to follow Jesus? Now there are some answers to those questions which should ring alarm bells. Because if you're hearing those questions and you're answering, Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there are things. Or I'm not sure if it cost me anything. Or it hasn't cost me anything to follow Jesus then what Jesus has to say at the end of our passage here should warn us. It should send the alarm bells ringing. Hear again what Jesus has to say. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there's a fair bit of debate about what Jesus means about salt losing its taste. Uh, there's a few different options, but I think the key thing is what he says at the end, second half of verse 34 going into verse 35. Once salt has lost its saltiness, you can't restore it. It's gone, and so it becomes useless, only good to be thrown away. Now, in context of what Jesus has been saying, I think it looks like what he's, saying is, what he's doing is that he's using salt as a metaphor for disciples. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you are salt. And you are of use to Jesus if you continue to put him first. There is no such thing as a Christian who prioritizes Jesus very low in their lives or second in their lives. That is like salt having lost its flavor. It becomes useless only to be thrown out. If you're not sure if Jesus is your first priority, then it may be that you're losing your saltiness to him. And the warning here should be clear for those who are hearing Jesus. Have you heard and understood? There are sometimes words from Jesus that are hard to wrestle with, sometimes because they take time to understand, at other times like today because they are just so blunt. Friends, there's no escaping these words. 
You cannot be Jesus' disciple if he isn't your first priority. You cannot be Jesus' disciple if he is not supreme above all else in your life. Jesus will not settle for being an addition to your life to try and make your life better or more spiritual. Jesus will not settle for second place. Jesus will not settle for just being scheduled into 10 minutes during the day and then 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. Jesus demands everything. Now this raises big questions. Is Jesus demanding perfection? I mean, none of us here can truly say that we prioritize Jesus over everything 100% of the time. So does that mean that we are in danger? And I think the answer to that question is that the disciple of Jesus is set on a direction of making Jesus first. Not that they keep Jesus first 100% all the time, but they are set on that direction of making him first. See, the challenge of today's passage is not to question our salvation or assurance, but to question how prepared we are to follow him to the very end. Are you prepared for the cost of following Jesus? Let's come back to this issue of family again for a moment. Uh, Jesus said some hard words about family. You cannot love your family more than me. You must love me so much that in comparison to it, it's like you hate your family. Now, most of us here in the second service aren't parents, but a lot of us still have strong connections to home. Living for Jesus in a home which doesn't put Jesus first is a challenge that some of us are facing and will face later on. And while there may be some compromises we might need to reach with our parents, the word of Jesus here should still ring clear. Am I first in all that you do? And when you're at home, it will be tempting to keep your head down and to not speak about Jesus or prioritize meeting with God's people. You don't want to rock the boat at home, but do not give in to that. We honor our parents by placing Jesus first. And when conflict happens, we still have to put Jesus first. So stand firm in your convictions and then pray for wisdom to navigate that road ahead. Jesus has said some hard things about everything else in life as well. Any, any one of you who does not renounce everything that he has cannot be my disciple. So have a think about that thing that counts as your everything. Are you ready to say no to that so that you can keep following Jesus? Now, I'm not going to tease out everything that falls under that everything because, you know, I think probably a more helpful thing here is to work out what Jesus is demanding. He's demanding us to sit down, to, it's, it, to weigh it all up, to consider what you would lose and what you would gain. Consider what you, you would lose in saying no to this thing and what you would gain in following Jesus. You think about that thing that counts as part of the everything we must renounce. Is it your work? Is it your career? Is it your personal time in retirement? Is it a strong desire for a relationship that you would consider dating and marrying a non-believer? That thing could also be an inner personal thing, your pride your time, your particular way of doing things. Take that thing and think about what you would lose if you had to say no to it, if you had to renounce it, and then quickly follow that up by thinking through what you would gain by following Jesus. So 
you might lose in your career advancement. You might lose the prestige and the honour that you have from people in your family for that. But you might gain in godliness and service. You might lose that personal time to yourself, but you might gain in investing in others. Work it out. Work out what you might lose, but then very quickly work out what you might gain in Christ. The final question for today is whether you have started to lose your saltiness. Uh, maybe you started the Christian marathon race strong, but it's now halfway or even getting to the end, and your legs are starting to get very shaky. Maybe you've taken the foot off the accelerator and you're beginning to just cruise in your Christian life. Uh, life is good at the moment. You don't really want to rock the boat. Things are good at work. Things are good at home. Right? Things are good in relationships. You're loving your life at the moment. And that eats away at your desire and the necessity to carry your cross. Be warned. If you lose your saltiness, then you are good for nothing than to be thrown away. Again, this isn't a question of whether you can lose your salvation, but this is a warning that true and genuine Christians will be distinct. You cannot be a follower of Christ and not carry a cross. You cannot be a follower of Christ if it has cost you nothing. You cannot be a follower of Christ and have other priorities over Jesus. The Dash, a poem by Linda Ellis. I read of a man who stood to speak at a funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that the first came, first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth and now only those who love them know what, little, what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. And so when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? This poem, often read at funerals, Linda Ellis is asking a really important question at the end there. Would you be proud of the things others would say about how you lived your dash, how you lived your life? That's a good question, but there is a more important question at the end of today in our passage from Luke. What would Jesus say about the way that you lived your dash? Would he look at you and be able to see the cost and the sacrifices that you've made? And on that final day, would you be able to hear the words, yes, you have been a good and faithful disciple. Let me pray. Now, Father in heaven, help us to make Jesus supreme. 
first in all we desire and do. Help us to count the cost of following Jesus and to believe that Jesus is worth it all. And then help us, Father, grow from that belief to conviction, to action, as we live before him. Help us to see every cost, every sacrifice made to be worth it in the end. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.